Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your co-hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of one of you games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I always feel like I sound like a robot when I'm saying this. This call may be recorded. Hi, Craig, my co-host. Hi, Craig. Hi. Well, if you want to flip at some point, maybe at episode 100, I'll start doing oh, the yeah. intro. There we go. For like <laughs> so, opposite day. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Craig Campbell. I am both halves of Nerdburger Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games as well. And we are here with our guest, a returning guest, yet again, Joey. Hello, Joey. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm Jerry Martin. I am the owner of Drowning Moon Studios, which is also a tabletop role-playing game publisher. Yeah. Uh, what what have you been doing recently with Drowning Moon Studios? Um, so for the time being, I am basically prepping for a crowdfunding project in early 2023. Um, I released a free PDF of a demo of a game called Wayfaring Strange. And then I also had a very limited print run of the the demo just in case people want to collect them but um it's a game that's uh diceless and it's basically about like you know urban legends liminal america like hidden highways folk magic all that sort of stuff so i'm gearing up to crowdfund that uh early 2023 but you can still like download the pdf of the demo or you can if you actually i was gonna say you can buy the the book at igdm but we actually sold out at gen con so yeah That was that was just setting me up for yep. <laughs> sold out. Um, I have to, I have to ask: Is the uh, the print format going to be uh, of the demo going to be the print format of the final? So I haven't decided one hundred percent on it because I like the fact that it's stylized to look like a brochure that you pick up at like you know any truck stop along yeah, the yeah, interstate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but that's I'm what not, I like too. <laughs> I like I love that idea. But at the same time, I also not sure if I can like fit like a hundred some odd page book into that format and make it easy for people to read. So I'm I'm waffling. I don't know which I want to use yet. I I I just want to say I love the the trifold brochure um, style that the demo was. I don't know if this is in your scope, but there's the possible you know like maybe there's up like a in conjunction with the game itself, there could be like a player's guide or handy reference tool of Road like map. the rules you know summer summary of rules that that is one of those because i think that 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 it so fits the theme of the game yeah um, i was like be, adoring it'd be great to have it. it would be great to have something that fits that yeah joey do what we want <laughs> <laughs> i'm just i'm just saying i'm putting my vote in if i have any sway at all that's my vote you of course are the publisher and you will do what you see fit uh, appropriately for the product I mean, it's, it's, it's possible, cool. it's possible. <laughs> I'll just chop it up into like multiple little folded brochures and just sell it as a set or something. But I had, I I'm just, I'm so worried about people like looking at it and going, this is really hard to like find things. And I don't want it's, you know, style over utility, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's such a, now that's a, that's a podcast topic. That becomes a pod- I was going to say that becomes a, a designer podcast topic. Like, you know, the, the print format, like what, what, what does what, it look like? What, what level of weird is too weird? You know, like oh. what, what will confuse people? What will be more difficult to use? Even if it's thematically like, yeah. And, and I'll I add have, it to I, the list. Put it to the, put it on the list because <laughs> I'm, I'm actually tinkering with an idea specifically kind of like in that vein as well. Uh, just because I'm one of those people that like constantly tries to experiment and do weird little things and um, make sure that my games don't sell terribly well. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, you know, maybe confuse people. Can't be too successful. 
<laughs> don't, don't want to do that. Might have to leave my day job. Um, <laughs> uh, the, it, it, uh, this week, uh, for both topics, we are going to talk about pulling from your own experiences, which is um, to say, like starting here, to you know, pulling from your own experience, your own life in GMing. And that is, I, I've come to realize as I was thinking about this, a very, very broad term, but there's nothing wrong with that. We can kind of hit on all the different variations of what that might mean to you because there are different levels of experience um, in your own personal life that you may or may not feel comfortable kind of bringing forward into the game um, or revisiting in conjunction with GMing. So let's let's go. Let her rip. Yeah, Joey, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on this because you chose the topic. So initially, I think it's almost impossible as a GM to not pull from your own experiences. Just like even if you're not trying to do it, you're going to do it anyway. Just because if you have to like... A lot of improvisation is natural in GMing, and it's a lot easier to just improv based on things you know. Um, but there are also like ways you can actively, like when you're designing like a campaign or a one shot, you can literally say, I'm going to put this in here because I happen to know about it. Like um, a good example I did um, when I was doing Magpie CCP Urban Shadows, um, I'm planning a trip to Edinburgh, Scotland. And because I had been doing so much research on the city of Edinburgh, I was like, you know, that'd be an interesting setting for an urban shadows game so I took what I was doing to plan my vacation and like kind of spun it out into like here's where you're going to go around as your characters you're going to go visit the witches well there's a piper that got lost under the castle 100 years ago you know stuff like that that made it really interesting encounters I think that's like the clearest way that a GM can pull from their experiences are like here's the thing that I've been looking into that I think is cool now you are, as my prisoner is at my table, going to also think that it's cool because you were my captive audience. I do that all the time. That's, I mean, I am obsessed with deep sea underwater creatures. I like love, love, love them. I love angler fish and gulper eels and giant squids. Uh, so inevitably we play with aboliths in my games. There's always going to be, there's always going to be one of those. And also I love fae. And like fairy lore. So that comes into play a lot too in my games, always. My favorite campaign I ever did this with. Okay, so I'm a Michigander. I love my home state. I grew up there, did a lot of camping, hung out in the wilderness a lot, kayaking, all, all the fun, go on the lake, all the fun Michigander things you can do. And I ran a Monster of the Week game for a group of people. And I made it all based on Michigan cryptids and Michigan folklore because it's something I'm very interested in. Um, for a little other reference, one of my family vacations, we visited the Skunk Ape Observatory <laughs> in Florida. We, I, My first ever experience on the internet with my dad was looking up pictures of Loch Ness Monster. We love cryptids in my household. So I knew a lot of these Michigan cryptids. And I made a whole campaign based off of it. And what happened, the result was it felt like, at least to me and my players still talk about it, at least. So I think they enjoyed it. It made it feel like a more fleshed out world. It made it feel more fun and true to form because I blended the setting that I knew very well, which was a kind of an alternate Lansing city with this folklore I knew. Like, I know about the Michigan dog man. I know about the melon heads. <laughs> I know about the the unicorn hunting club in Northern Michigan. I know all this stuff. Why not include it in my game? And it just made it more fun. 
So I, I think, Joy, what you said, that's the main thing. <laughs> it's the fun <laughs> thing. Make them like what you like. I found myself thinking a lot when it came to this topic of perhaps the the experience that I have had that has been the most formative for my GMing and game playing and really to game design as well, which was six summers performing at the Bristol Renaissance Fair. I learned a great deal about improvisation, taking actual improv classes, eventually teaching improv to people. I was that accomplished at one time. Um, and doing street theater and no script, dramatic and comedic scenes and learning, kind of finding the appreciation for and kind of accidentally studying you, because you can't help but just kind of glean this information, like accidentally studying the idea of the five minute scene, the 10 minute scene and like how you can structure something to be comedic or dramatic in that short period of time that's real punchy, that gets to the point that reveals something about characters or progresses the story in some way. And so I, I'm, I'm not necessarily telling people to go out and perform at a Renaissance fair. Um, or take improv classes. Although um, if you have the means and you're interested and you've got a few bucks, taking a course in improv is awesome. You will learn so much about interacting with other people in, in uh, pursuit of a common goal, which is just telling this story that the scene is doing. Like there's, there's not a big difference other than the dice <laughs> from role-playing games, <laughs> just, you know, thematically. And, you know, I just, I find myself every so often kind of thinking in terms of those things. And then occasionally, you know, having memorable moments from the, my time in fair, playing a character doing this or that, or witnessing somebody else do a particular scene or a stage play or a sword fight or something that I thought was really cool. I mean, I've, I've described many a time characters doing the run up the tree and backflip move. <laughs> Because there was a couple of, of stage fighters who they had this big fight that happened during the middle of the day. And I was during a couple of the years, I was there for it all the time. And we, we played the part of like spectators, but also spotters to make sure that like little kids didn't run in there and get whacked in the head, mm -hmm. poked in the eye. Um, and that was that was a, a big wow moment in the in the in the in the fight. And, you know, it just reminds you that like without getting too weirdly uh, special effecty like you know there are some pretty cool things that the human body can do um that you can describe and have those types of things like parkour oriented kind of stuff if that's something you're into too you might like i know that people can do this thing so i can describe that in the game and make everybody go whoa and it's not strictly a DD monk that's doing it it's just like somebody that's fit and yeah. pulls off these these wild moves so yeah, that's that's kind of where my head went for a lot of this. There's a lot to be had there for any any activity you've taken part in that has interaction involved in it and you know like unscripted and like common goal interaction involve involvement. Um you can carry that sort of those lessons over into GMing very easily. I think Six Summers at the Bristol Renaissance Fair sounds like the the Mountain Goats album or song it really title. Does. <laughs> That could be the name of a game too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that kind of um, like improvisational, uh, effectively theater, because I have a background in LARPing and I ran LARPs and wrote LARPs long before I started doing tabletop games. And just from like my experience as someone who was directing a LARP, like you can plan for things, but with you have like 80 players, you know, something is going to go off the rails. So it, 
absolutely like trains you to be able to improv really quickly and kind of like reach, um, like you said, like a common goal between like you and the players, they're all trying to get to something. So you, you can kind of pull from like, well, you know, the thing I planned didn't go off the way I wanted to, but the players seem interested in this. So that means that I can adapt whatever I want to do to their needs effectively. And I definitely think like even just playing LARPing, but also directing LARPing made me a much better table GM just because I had that that idea in my head that it's not always going to go to plan, that you are going to have to like come up with some stuff on the fly real quick. And also the fact that, you know, the players don't know what you have and have not prepared. So you can you can come up with something completely just like pull it out of the air and they're not going to know the difference. Like, so I know some people are planners when they come to like, you know, tabletop GMing and some people are pantsers. I don't know if that's a familiar term. <laughs> it is Did for me. See it, see your pants. Yeah. See your pants. Yeah. And I'm kind of like halfway between the two where I'll like, I'll have some ideas lined out, but based on what the players do, they're gonna, they're gonna morph in some way. They're going to change in some way. You're a planster. Yes. <laughs> the new terminology there in the NaNoWriMo circles. Um, I, I, I think Joey and Craig, what you're both saying about this, like these things that you do to increase your improvisational skills are great for being a GM because half of what you're doing as a GM is reacting to what the players are doing. And like Joey, like what you said, uh, they um, can be unpredictable at times <laughs> to to the best of our abilities we cannot 100% predict the human reaction particularly the human player reaction and the, like the saying is write what you know and I think the same thing goes for GM what you know but that doesn't mean you can't then go if you want to become a better GM go out and actively seek to know more things uh, I don't think it would hurt anybody to go take an improv class Alex took an improv class at, my husband took an improv class at uh, a convention. What was it? Game Hole Con, I think. And uh, I, I think he got a lot out of it, judging by the stories he was telling me about it. So I, I think it's worth it. LARPing, Renaissance fairing, teaching has a lot of improv in it. Uh, I, pull, I pull my teaching skills as a GM all the time. Uh, a lot of it is just my developed teacher voice, but... Uh, I think the the improvisational thing is uh, a huge hit. As far as other skills um, that you can pull into, like there's like we've talked about, there's so many different aspects to GMing, right? There's so many different kind of roles that you're filling or at least kind of expected to fill most of the time that we've talked a lot about handouts um, at one uh, in some previous episodes. And, you know, if your background, if your, your job or your interests, um, your hobby, other hobbies, are in writing, in graphic design, in art, in sketching, in video or audio production or editing, that can all translate into kind of cool little handouts. Like, you know, if, if you want to leave that stuff at the job and you don't want to bring um, graphic design home with you, that's fine. But, uh, you know, if, if like doing something that's fun for you that's fulfilling in that way that is going to be just for you and your game group or your friends. That's something that you can definitely kind of take that uh, into play in GMing because you've got a, you've got an expertise in one of these things or, or more of them, one or more. And, you know, if you're up for it uh, a little extra time, you know, and maybe only occasionally when you're 
willing to put the time in and have the time available um, to create like little handouts or just at the beginning of the campaign to kind of help set the stage, you might put together some um, some handouts that are really beautiful and lovely and the players will want to keep at the table and reference all yeah. the time. Um, and it be, just becomes something that helps to immerse and help build the world and the game. And if you've got the expertise to do that, then yeah, go for it. Um, I actually have a background in theater production. So I was a costume designer professionally for a while. Um, I've done prop design, stage managing, that sort of thing. And um, Frequently, I would make props and things for like uh, particular games or campaigns that I was running, but um, I had a uh, Indiegogo that fulfilled early in this year, and one of the tiers that I put up was um, basically a box of stuff that went along with like the, the adventure that I had designed to go along with the core game. And it's basically been just, you know, like a couple of months of me making props to fill the boxes for the people who bought that tier. So like I sew, so I'm making like little stuffed rabbits. Um, I did a bunch <laughs> of like uh, text props, like handwritten letters that were like tea stained and then burned partially. Um, just all sorts of different things that I learned while I was actively working in theater that I was able to kind of transfer over into creating stuff for this particular adventure for people to run their own games. And I love doing that. I love making things, like making things with my own hands is one of like the most satisfying things I can do. So it was really nice to kind of bring that back into like making props for other GMs effectively that are going to be running this and hopefully help them immerse a little bit and get a little bit excited about the particular mystery that they decided to back. I think there are so many things you could do in that. I love that. I, I would cherish forever if my GM gave me something handmade and cool like that um, as a prop. I, I would think about that for the rest of my life because that's one of the ways you can just like really help immerse your your players a little bit more, give them a little bit more of the like the personal feel in the game. I think that's a that's a great idea. That's a good idea for a player too to like mm -hmm. bring in a prop. Like if and it's a thing that you already know how to do. You didn't have to like go out and learn the skill just for the GMing. That's not what this, this whole conversation is about, but everyone hopefully has a hobby that let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's hope that we all have a hobby. It, it, it makes you a, a nice, well-rounded, happy individual, including that hobby in your, in your table. Like maybe you write poetry, write some poems. Maybe you, if you're like big into sports, maybe you're including a sport in your, in your game that will feel more it will feel more real because you like it and you know about it again that's why again the write what you know it's because it feels more real feels more fleshed out feels more immersive than just trying to make it up and you're not actually interested in it or know anything about it i love sea shanties <laughs> and I, I I sang sea shanties before it was cool a couple of years ago remember oh. when it got cool for about six months Hipster. Um, I, but I, uh, you know, and this was a Renaissance fair thing. We had a, there was a group of us at the end of the day for a couple of, couple of those summers, we would just go sing and we would sing um, Eng old English and Irish folk songs and sea shanties you, often to audiences that didn't pay for it or necessarily want it, but we would just run up and ambush people and sing a song <laughs> at, and sing a song at them and then go away. Try <laughs> a sea shanty. And it was, and, and sea shanties comprised about half of what we sang, you know, and I, I look forward to the day. I haven't quite had that chance yet. I've done some nautical campaigns. I haven't quite 
taking the dive of saying like, okay, now we're going to sing a sea shanty or like incorporate that into the game. Um, mm-hmm. But Tristan Zimmerman's Shanty Hunters has gotten me thinking about like, why haven't I done this? Because uh, like the, the sea shanty thing is something, I mean, I own albums, like, like, let's put it that way. And I have listened to them many, many, many times. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that sort of thing. It's like, like Jess said, um, an interest that I have that I can bring to the game and, you know, you do, you try it out one time and if everybody kind of gets into it, well, okay, now we're playing a nautical campaign and sea shanties are part of the game. Like, you're like <laughs> everybody knows the rules of what a sea shanty is supposed to be and you can write your own and you can give us lyrics and we'll sing them together as part of the game. And we're all friends and just having fun with it or, you know, just players having fun with the game and who cares if we're off key and, you know, it's just fun. So there's that, you know, like literally just drag it drag your interest kicking and screaming into the game and see if it clicks with other people i mean also you're just kind of like sharing something that you think is cool and you're like look i think this is cool maybe you'll think it's cool and you know that's great for i mean that's great for just making like friendships in general is like here's this cool thing i think it's cool you might want to uh explore it in some way maybe you'll think it's cool and that's like a point of connection i just i feel like even just as players bringing that into like a tabletop game, it's really helpful because it just, it makes the world feel bigger. Like Jess said, it makes it feel more real and more solid. And like, it just gives it a little bit of nuance that you don't always have when you're especially doing like, you know, say you're doing like a dungeon crawl and that's a lot of fighting and going through traps and stuff like that. Just having that kind of like in the background is really helpful with maintaining the idea of a world and characters and how they all fit in together. And speaking of characters, a great way to make the world feel a bit more real is use some of the interesting and quirky people that you meet in your life to also add (laughs) to your slate of NPCs. Uh, I I think you, (laughs) I have had fun experiences even making NPCs out of my players and putting them in the game. Maybe not explicitly telling them that, but <laughs> dropping hints that, oh, this is just you. Uh, and that can be fun, too. I mean, it's just I, I think there's there are so many things you can do to make the, the game is so creative and social. And I, I love I love how many people do RPGs to get to know the actual person behind the character. I think that's great. I've I've brought a fellow that I knew in college, his name, well, let's call him Tyson F. Noose, because that was his name. F, Wait, his, hold on. Tyson Noose. Noose. N-U-S-S. Middle name F. Not Frank with the initial F. Middle name F. He came from a family that named him with a middle name, the letter F. So that tells you a little <laughs> bit about his background. Long red hair, pulled, in, pulled back into ponytail, uh, walrus mustache, wore all black, spoke, kind of had a intellectual way about him an intellectual way of speaking that guy has shown up in a number of games morphed into uh you know the kind of not officious prick type character but the mildly officious sounds like um a little intellectual and is a, a little bit lording it I, I exaggerate him a little bit for the purposes of the characters he was a very in, in life he was a tyson was a very nice guy um but that's just he had he had an affect about him that i found very intriguing and i have borrowed his voice <laughs> um, and his attitude a number of times in games yeah i've actually put my dog in a game before as a character. <laughs> <laughs> because because she was such like uh she had such a big personality and i knew i wanted to have some sort of animal companion for this one shot and i was like i just put my dog in the game and you know 
as is usually the case, players love when you have a dog. <laughs> like that's they like glom onto it. So that oh, was yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it was it was nice having her as a character, and they were just they were very excited to have her in the game. I've done the same thing with my dog before, uh, who would usually be around <laughs> us in the game anyway. Uh, but then I'm always very nervous that like, oh no, something bad might happen to him. No. I'm going to keep him safe. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> bad is ever going to happen to this dog. It's an invincible immortal dog. I've also included annoying people that I don't like in my game. I don't think that there's anything ethically wrong with that. It is the asshole tax. If you're going to be a jerk to me, <laughs> you might you might be a, a jerk in my game too. Yeah, that's uh, the David Sedaris <laughs> tactic. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't be a jerk to David Sedaris because he writes about everybody <laughs> in his life and he does not pull punches. Oh <laughs> man, I was gonna say that actually reminded me of like sometimes I'll pull from historical figures. And the reason why like that brought it up is I mean you were talking about like you know assholes. I was like, I put Lord Byron in a bunch of games so far. <laughs> he was such he was yeah. such a dick, but he's an interesting person. Yeah, I mean that's that's such a great thing with history and historical characters in general. A lot of people who play role-playing games have a like a history hobby. They like learning about history. And again, it's one of those things where you can make the world feel more realistic when you're adding little elements from history or people from history. Maybe Lord, Lord Byron's a time traveler. I don't know what you did with Lord Byron. Um, <laughs> but if you're playing a game that's set in World War II, having that, like you probably you're a history fan anyway, but using your history buff knowledge to make it cool and make connections I've had that happen with a GM who was like really into, into history. And then what I did was included my hobby as a player by being a cryptologist, like not a cryptologist, but like a cryptozoologist kind of type character. And everyone's going to bring in their own thing. As soon as you start displaying your passion, they're going to bring it in too. You display, you put Lord Byron in your game, you might get that poet buff coming in and being like, oh yeah, well, here's, here's my stuff too. And that, it just makes the game more fun, right? I got to ask this now. In the last episode, Jess and I both profess our, our love for Much Ado About Nothing. Um, not historical figures, but well-known uh, theatrical, you know, fictional characters um, that have been portrayed in a number of different ways in different movies and plays. Have you, have, have Beatrice and Benedict ever made an appearance in your game, just named something else, skinned as something else? No, um, I've done it. And I've used Dogberry multiple times. Dogberry is a ton of fun to play because he's such a buffoon. And you, always, <laughs> you, give him, you give him his toady, you give him his toady assistant and it, you're good to go. Um, I've actually used Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. There you um, go. From Hamlet, but also from my favorite play, which is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Right, the, and the overly just, self-aware I know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's just, they're, they're, there's so much to pull Philosophical, from. yeah. Yeah. Just a promotion of that movie as well. If you've never seen Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, that is a great deconstruction of those two characters and what it means sort of to be tertiary characters in a story. Especially in I, a I tragedy. have to watch it again. In a tragedy, <laughs> yeah, where things go poorly for them. Um, I have to watch that movie again. It's been too long. I also have a tendency to pull um, Quincy Morris, who was the cowboy in Dracula, into stories. Oh, Quincy. Because, yeah, that's a great, that's a great pull. Are, Nobody is, remembers if, Quincy. If you didn't read the book, you have no idea he exists because yeah. he never shows up in any of the interpretations, but he was my favorite character in the book. Yeah. For those so. of you who haven't read the book, there's a cowboy in Dracula, <laughs> everybody, an American cowboy. 
He's like one of the best characters. Yeah, he is. He's he's as much fun as any of the other, you know, Harker or Seward or any of that group. I'm I'm still <laughs> reading Dracula for the first time by doing Dracula Daily, so please no spoilers. I need oh, okay, to... <laughs> no spoiler. But Quincy, yeah. I mean, no, like I already whole, know about Quincy character. and all yeah. of them. Yeah, well, yeah he's, I, he's there it's just the it blows me away every so often. I see somebody post on Twitter. I had no idea there was a cowboy in Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how can we then take our, the things we know, our personal experiences, I think it's it's pretty well, like established how you can do that as a GM, but how do you include that in the actual design of your games? Well, we've talked about taking the things that you love or have studied, or as an extension of that that you want to study more about that you perhaps know some things about and you have an inherent you have an interest already and it gives you an excuse to study more about and build that into your game or or build a game around it like i did with capers i'm fascinated by 1920s prohibition and gangsters from the era both the um highly stylized overly romanticized movie and television versions of them and the real life these are murdering thugs version of them um, that did all sorts of terrible things. And uh, I knew enough to want to write capers and it gave me an excuse to do a lot more research. And, you know, that led me down the road of understanding like how prohibition actually came about in this country. Like all the, all the things that built up to it, people look at it and be like, well, why did we just outlaw <laughs> uh, alcohol for a little over 10 years in, in the U.S.? Well, it was, you know, 70 years in the making. You know, so you learn all of that stuff. And then when you play the game, when you run the game, when you design the game, you can bring the, all of that knowledge to bear and kind of pepper it in every so often. I think for me particularly, it's hard for me to write a game that does not have some sort of like connection to something that I'm very interested in or like a personal experience. Um, like, like kind of going back to like Dracula and Lord Byron, um, my concentration in college was Victorian and Gothic literature. So that gets pulled in like all the time because I'm just, I'm very interested in that particular topic. Um, that's part of the reason why I wrote Star Crawl Hall, which is a, a Gothic uh, tabletop role-playing game that uses the gumshoe system to basically solve mysteries and stuff like that. But because I have such like a background and such a knowledge of that particular genre, it's something that I'd always wanted to like do some sort of work in. And I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna make a game that people can play through and just, explain like here's the basics of gothic literature here's how you can use it in your game effectively that i i love i've learned so much about you today joey <laughs> like there's <laughs> like you have all this really cool stuff that can so easily translate to really cool game play i i adore it for me i i have had like I do linguistics and teaching and that, I mean, it can come up. It helps me a lot with my GMing. Like I said before, there's not a lot of like role-playing games that are about teaching. And I particularly don't, I don't find teaching to be a very fun role-play subject just because of the nature of what teaching is. But there are other things I've, I, I have, I have made one game where it is set in a school. It's called the Coven of PS 13, where it's, you're basically teenage girls and maybe a teacher if you decide to play the teacher playbook doing normal school stuff during the day and then doing witchy stuff at night and that did pull from a lot of my experiences with uh you know like how does school work how do students behave and my my love of movies like mean girls 
but also what I learned when I was in college, when I was in the pagan club in college. So I learned a lot. I just, I just took some of that and added that as gameplay mechanics because I knew how it might work with gameplay. I just don't really, I struggle with this in my own, like how can I turn those experiences into not stories I can do. Mechanics, that's a little harder, I think. I have a question for, just on a related note real quick, I have a question for you, Jen, and if this puts you on the spot too much, we can cut it. You're a teacher and role-playing games, the book, in part, are intended to teach the game to people. Do you find yourself incorporating aspects of what you know about conveying information so that it's memorable and, and, and takes with the learner, uh, the student, um, in, in how you structure role-playing games and presentation of information and flow? Uh, as a teacher, um, I, I feel like I am an expert. I've been teaching for 10 years now, over 10 years, if you count my experience being a tutor and um, teaching, like doing student teaching and things like that. I know the best practices to get people onboarded onto learning something that might be complex. And the secret is scaffolding, which is using what the players or what the readers, what your learners already know, and getting them acclimated a step at a time to your ultimate goal. And I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot when it comes to writing, like actually writing out a book that. I've pulled exclusively from my experiences as a teacher because it is essentially just lesson planning. What's your goal? What do you want them to know? What's your tactic to get them there? What do they already know? How can you bridge the gap? It's, it's, uh, I don't know. That's just also very natural for me too. Uh, but yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly that comes into play when it comes to writing. I would like to listen to your TED talk on that topic at some point. <laughs> I've been thinking about doing a panel at a convention that sometime. Great. With that would be teachers. great. There's a lot I could go into, um, <laughs> which might be a little boring, uh, but there it's there. There's a there's a tactic. It would really behoove everyone to to take a pedagogy course. I think if they want to get really good at teaching something. Uh, what about you, Joy? How does your um, how does your background in like Victorian literature and in costume design how does that make its way into the mechanics of your games? I mean. So with something like Victorian literature, it's very much like a tone almost. So when you're writing a game and you're trying to convey like this is the world that the game takes place in, being able to pull from all that I know about that and put it into the game is what's really helpful. And honestly, like trying to figure out like, you know, what is common knowledge for people that are not maybe as familiar with, say, Victorian Gothic literature but they might have seen like, you know, Crimson Peak, or they might be familiar with the Dracula movie, stuff like that. So it's actually a lot like you were saying, where you build a scaffolding, where you take well-known things and then you extrapolate upon it. For costuming, I honestly haven't brought that into writing a game yet. I am, there's a game I'm working on that involves um, quilting as part of the mechanic, but that's not quite done yet. Um, And it's like, if you are a novice sewer you can still participate because a lot of the process of like doing the mechanical stuff the game is literally learning how to do like you know here's how you do like embroidery here's how you do beading this is how you lay out the batting like all of these individual things being actively taught in the game are part of the mechanic to do what you're trying to do which is magic but um Mm. that was not quite done yet it's still percolating a little bit 
Um, I haven't really done anything with costuming in particular because I don't know. I just, a lot of people are interested in like, you know, the finished product of a costume, but not so much in the, like, you know, here's how I had to iron something for six hours, you know, it's not quite <laughs> as exciting. Um, but what I, what I do pull from, not just like stuff that I have learned, like, you know, when I was in college or taught myself over time, like sewing, but also like from just personal experiences I've had, like I have a game that I wrote um, <clears throat> where it was basically like retelling of an experience I had when I was in high school because I had a classmate that went missing during my sophomore year of high school and we never figured out what happened to her Um, so I was like that's just something that sat with me for a really long time and I was like well what if you write a game about it and let other people explore you know this situation that you were in and maybe they get to decide you know she's found she comes home here's what happened and so a lot of that particular game was basically like here's the situation that I'm very familiar with I want to see what you as players do with it and how you basically in the story that didn't really have an ending because we never we never figured out what had happened to her she was just gone I think you touched on something that is so important which is like how how writing a game can help you process some things that have happened in your experiences too how do you feel like it has helped you like because that I feel like that's that's kind of traumatic it I feel like you know seeing other people play that particular game and what they decide to do it's like there is kind of a sense of closure from it because I know that they're basically deciding what happened to this character, but the situation being based on something that actually happened to me, it's, I don't know, it gives me like a weird sense of hope. I don't know if that's like a good way to describe it, but like the fact that other people do care about this thing that happened and they want to in like, not impose their will. That's not the great way to say it. They want to shape it to Mm -hmm. a different situation in some way. That is very, what's the name of that game? Um, That one's called Charlotte Sometimes. Um, It's going to be out in December because I went through playtesting for a few months to make sure it worked the way it was supposed to. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's, that's definitely bringing in an experience, the whole gameplay. I think a lot of us think like, okay, here's this, here's this experience I've had. How would, not necessarily how would I gamify it? Because that sounds like not what we're, doing really but like how how can I put a mechanic on this how can I dress it up as a game so other people can share this experience with me is just a very powerful tool that we have at our human disposal Mm -hmm. there's um a few of the museums also in the New York area maybe other parts of the country but New York's what I'm familiar with will occasionally have interactive games that are part of the curriculum in the uh, in the museum. So people can come and experience like what it was like to be like, they did one that was set in World War II, where it was like, you know, art, hiding the art from the Nazis effectively. Yeah. And had had a character who was basically like a Jewish person who was escaping, I think Poland or something similar. And she was like leading them through, like, here's what happened in the time when I existed And here's you experiencing this thing that happened to me as this character. So you get a better sense of like what it was like. Yeah, that's, that's, I love the, the games as, as pedagogy, as teaching. Wow. And I think that that reminds me of something that a lot of us have an experience with in school, less, maybe less of a serious subject, but 
is the Oregon Trail game. I think all, <laughs> I think all of us might remember Oregon Trail the game better than we remember the lesson plan that our teacher had about the Oregon Trail. Absolutely, one hundred percent guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. we remember that <laughs> yeah. it was tough and that you would lose your your stupid wheels and die of dysentery. Everyone remembers this. Who and it was hard to cross rivers. Yeah, the rivers were my nemesis in that game. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What is it? 1871. That's the uh, Paramount Plus series. That's the predecessor to um, some other series that they have. It was just a short series. Um, <laughs> that made me think of the hard to cross rivers. There's a whole episode that has to do with like this group of people that isn't prepared to be in the wilderness crossing a river when they didn't have a bridge. Um, and they're trying to take horses and wagons that are loaded um, uh-huh. across. And it's incredibly deadly. Yeah. Like that's like just knowing the knowledge of history of of all that and building that. Like if you if you design a game where like the characters are, ex- you know, exploring, expanding into the wilderness and everything. And like we we, we as GMs often kind of just be like, oh, yeah, you get to a river, you find a, f- a place to f- ford the river and, you, you know, or, or there's a bridge or a ropeway or whatever. You could build a game where like just traversing the wilderness could be incredibly deadly and you could yeah. build mechanics that that fit that just because you know that historically that's what it was for a long time um and you've studied that or or learned about it even if it's just through media that represents it well yeah it's games as experiences i i think that that i mean it's not quite what our our topic does is but i like that this is where we've been led for it i I'm remembering all the other games I've played that I learned so much about. Like the reason why I'm obsessed with deep sea creatures, well, other than being terrified of uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea, it was because of a Magic School Bus Oceans game I played on CD-ROM on Windows 95 (laughs) or whatever. Like just games are a way to make something feel so much more personal and, and putting your experience that you've had whatever it is into the game that you've made to make other people experience it is it's such a cool way to 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 share that with other people craig have you ever done this with architecture i'm, I'm curious when you we were talking about murders <laughs> and acquisitions and you were talking about office politics i was like craig's worked in office <laughs> yeah. he knows he knows as far as architecture goes, I haven't really done it much with game design, but I've done it with adventure design because I've freelanced a number of adventures for Wizards of the Coast for D&D before the Nerdburger Games thing really got rolling. And um, generally speaking, in those adventures, when you wrote them, you also sketched the map like a, cart- a cartographer or an artist would come through and make the final pretty map. But you sketched it out because you needed to know how the dungeon was laid out or what the castle looked like or whatever. And um I, I went into a fair bit of detail, like like there's there's uh, one adventure where the, the end game takes place in a this gigantic church, and I went through historical examples of cruciform churches. Um, I didn't make a cruciform strictly like a Christian cross, but like I made it like a you know like a plus sign. Um, it's got you know little arm little short arms on one side, so there was a, a an intersection of of spaces. Um, you know, and then I, and I built in like everything that's actually supposed to be there. There were, you know, cloisters for the, for the clerics and there were actual privies that were provided for, um, you know, people like there's like everything that needed to be in the kitchen was actually there. There was a, you know, a pantry and a larder and, 
um, ale storage and, you know, like all the things that need to be there. Like there were, there were like seven, <laughs> like different little storage rooms that were part of the kitchen because for that many people, you had all these things. Uh, there was an adventure called Star Haunt that was in a kind of castle-like observatory with one very, very tall tower where these astronomers studied the the baleful stars above. There were like these constellations mm. and stars that were dark and evil and they had brought portents of terrible things. And then a meteor crashes through the tower and then also like crashes, comes in at an angle, crashes through this big tower, effing up the astron, you know, the astronomer's tower at the top. And then also crashes through another part of the building and then into the basement and like, you know, like I had to sit there and like trajectory and like I had to lay, I wanted, I wanted the certain parts of the castle to be, or certain parts of the, uh, the observatory to be destroyed for reasons that had to do with the story. So I had to lay out the building in a way that accommodated that for the story, but also made sense to me as an architect about how a place like this would be laid out in, <laughs> in architecture. It's called programming. It's not, diff not terribly different from developing a teaching, you know, like a, the, the program for, for teaching, developing a syllabus, developing, you know, your teaching plan. It's a program. You're, you're kind of figuring out what you need, how it all needs to be arranged, what the adjacencies are, what's important about each of the spaces. And I, you know, I went into a great deal of detail and while Starhaunt got fairly heavily rewritten in development uh the map barely changed and my uh my developer at the time even remarked that um we we made sure all of the uh text changes and story changes that took place in the game still fit the map because the map was right and he knew that my background was in architecture and he knew that i would probably like yeah you can change my words all you want but you start effing with my floor plan and we're gonna have words <laughs> i i think that's so like that really shows what like when you write from your experiences and like you're writing what you know you know what is important like i would never even know what a cruciform church is and I, and I have played on, now that you said this word, I know exactly what you're saying. I've played on maps with a cruciform church in it. Now yes. I know. Yeah. What's a nave? What's a sanctum? What's the rectory? What's, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what all those terms, but, what's... but you would know <laughs> that those are things that have to be in there. Like you would know what is important because you've done that research. Whereas someone who's just like, I gotta, I gotta make a church map. Might... It's going to be a big rectangle with a bunch of rooms in it. Yeah, I mean yeah. that can the same be time, that can be a church. They right. those exist. Strip mall <laughs> churches exist. And then at the same time, I wrote an adventure that had this wacky wizard in it, and their wizard tower made no sense at all, and it was <laughs> magical, so it could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, wizard towers don't exist in real life, so there's nothing really you can make up whatever you want. <laughs> That's just right, true. but there, there was no, there was there was zero logic to it. Like there, that thing could not stand up. <laughs> see i wouldn't know i wouldn't but, know i would make it but stand magically up. but magically it was fine and i even i even told them make sure to draw all the walls thin i don't want to see any thick walls at the base thin walls at the top none of that crap this is a magic castle draw the <laughs> draw the walls all thin everything about it needs to make it needs to be it needs to clearly not look like it could be a normal tower i i would have no clue how to go about doing that <laughs> joey have you ever played a game where something fell off to you because it went against your lived experience and your knowledge? Um, honestly, I mean, I was going to say like, you know, obviously since I know a lot about like the Victorian era that anytime someone sets a game in that I have to take it with like, you know, a grain of salt that they're not like super experienced and they're just kind of pulling from what interests them. Um, the thing that comes up more often is because uh, I grew up 
as a child in a very rural area. And my dad was forester for a while. So we went out to do like, you know, here's foraging, hunting, you know, nature trips, stuff like that. So I have that like ingrained in like my, my childhood memories of how to do certain things, wilderness survival, how do I put that? Wilderness survival adjacent, I guess, effectively, because it wasn't really survival. It was mostly just like, you know, don't eat these mushrooms or here's how you lay a mm-hmm. trap for like a, a squirrel or something like that. And so like every time I play a game where there's some sort of like you're out in the wilderness and you're basically like hunting or something like that, I feel like I have to like hold myself in and not like try to explain to the GM that like, no, that's not actually how that works <laughs> because I just I have such a, a it's like such a formative experience in my childhood is about like, you know, you, you, you like, if you're going to go out and go bow hunting, you're only going to really, really shoot big game. You're not going to like usually try to shoot like a squirrel with that. A snare is better for a squirrel. You like stuff like that. Things like people are not people. If they have not grown up, like around someone who taught them how to like, you know, hunt and survive in the wilderness, not going to know any of this. And it's like, it's not even that important. It's just like little small things. I'm like, but that's not how that works. (laughs) I think 100% that is my biggest fear when I'm writing or making a game, which is why I try to just do the stuff that I do know where I have heavily researched because I don't want to be the person who makes the one, the other player have to bite their tongue and say, oh, that's not how that works. I never want, I never want a Joey sitting at my Victorian table thinking, (laughs) no, no, it's, it makes me a better writer. It makes me a better designer because I, I want everything to be as immersive as it can be or at least have a purpose for being anachronistic or whatever I'm doing. And most of the time I'm, I'm okay with just letting it go because I don't expect people to know stuff like this. It's, it's like one specific area of interest that I focused on, but they don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one's going to be like, hopefully no one's going to like interrupt the game. Like that's not how this works at all. Uh, I just want it. I want to avoid that as much as possible, the feeling or the desire to do so. uh for like for me I know how much rage I can feel if someone misrepresents how how teaching works like when I watch tv shows or movies about schools and the teacher is shouting out what the homework is right after the bell rings at like the <laughs> the amount of eye rolling I do when I'm watching movies set in a school is amazing that's why I like Abbott Elementary so much it really does get the feel very, very well. It gets the vibe down. When it comes to gaming from your personal experience, I'm going to share this little story very quickly. This is this did not happen to me. I did not witness this, but I've seen this story told a number of times. I don't remember for sure who tells it. It was some. It was it's a longtime veteran game designer who was involved in Star Wars uh, in one of the earlier iterations, and they were running a game at a convention. And there was um, this older couple that came up to the table to play star wars and um they uh, he the, the, G, the gm discovered that uh, the dm just dis- yeah gm discovered that um that they were this was you know years ago so this was a world war ii vet and his wife who had we learned eventually had been involved in the resistance in france wow and they played Star Wars and they had no idea really what a role playing game was what it was all about i'm not even sure why why they were at the convention but they were there and they started to play and the, uh, the GM started explaining kind of what everything is about. And so there, it's these two people that are brand new and a table full of people that are there for Star Wars and they know role-playing games. And 
um, the, 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 the gene kind of explains what the game is about. And the, uh, the couple looks at him and says, oh, so this is World War II. They're space Nazis. Yeah. And he said, yeah, and you're the rebels. And he said, okay, this is what we do. And he took control of the group <laughs> and like became a soldier <laughs> in an instant. And his, and his wife be, like, you, utilized knowledge and skills garnered during resistance fighting and like turned that table into the most efficient rebel hit squad in the history <laughs> of Star Wars role-playing game. And if you ever happen upon the story, if I can ever figure out who it was that told it and find an example of it being told, I might have butchered a little bit of, of the part of what, what's being described, but it was basically that. That is like <laughs> bringing your lived experience to gaming in a way that I can't even begin to fathom. Yeah. And I, I bet like there's so much that everyone else at the table kind of learned there too. I like games as political action. I think that's a really good example of it. Uh, like Moonpunk has like a guide to direct action. That's like, here's what you, if you are trying to do good in your community and be anti-racist and, and be anti anti-oppression like here are some of the steps you need to actually take if if i were a resistance fighter making a game i might be able to actually help help people learn get some knowledge going at the table for sure i love that i i want to play with that person <laughs> no kidding <laughs> um, it was years ago i'm i'm relatively certain that they're no longer with us right. but it's a story that like as the story, I mean, it, the, the person who experienced it um, writes about it every so often. And it's always like the people just go, wow, wow, wow. And like, apparently everybody that was at the table, like they, everybody came away with like, maybe the best gaming experience of their life. Powerful, mm -hmm. powerful stuff. Gaming is powerful. It is. Man, it's going to get all waxing philosophical and, and lovey-dovey about games. But I, I do love the transformative power of games. And I, I think that like having this conversation really makes me realize how much the experience, like the sharing of experience as gameplay is even more powerful than reading about it in literature. I've been thinking this entire time for all the things that I got interested in or that I've learned because I played a game about it more yeah. so than anything else. It's definitely different when you're actively experiencing something rather than reading it. Like that distance that you usually have is removed and it becomes way more personal to you. And to bring those two thoughts back around to the, the designer standpoint, it is worth keeping in mind that you are potentially bringing that gift to the GM and the players and the people who are going to read your game like you're going to give them that so mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a driving force but it can be something that you keep in mind and know that like well i'm i'm bringing this knowledge and information and this interest in this history or this whatever into this game and it's going to there's the potential that it will transform some people and that's something that's really kind of special about being a game designer because that transformation mm -hmm. will will be very personal do you have any final thoughts joey i think and kind of what I said at the beginning of the episode about like when you're GMing and or specifically when I'm GMing, it's hard for me not to bring my own personal experiences into it. And obviously the same way with designing. I think it's true for a lot of other people too. And not just as designers or GMs, but also as players where you're bringing something unique to the table every time you do it. Like your lived experiences or the things that you are intimate with are not going to be the same things other people are. And as Craig said, it's kind of like you're giving them a gift of here's 
here is something that is precious to me, something that I've experienced. I would like you to experience it too. Thank you for coming on and talking to us about this. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I know that for our listeners, we didn't like do a lot of very succinct, solid game design stuff, but I I am personally inspired now. And I feel like what I'm doing as a game designer can matter in other ways that I hadn't thought about before. So thanks for Agreed. sharing. Mm-hmm. This was a spectacular discussion. Joey, where can we find you and, and see your experiences as game design? You can always go to Drowning Moon Studios website, which is drowningmoonstudios.com, nice and simple. Um, but you can also find me on Twitter and I'm at Honey in Hedgerow. So instead of and because there's a character Olympic, it's Honey in Hedgerow on Twitter. <laughs> and you said that you have a couple games coming down the pipeline. I actually have three that sh- should be out by the end of the year because two of them are um, crowdfunding. Uh, Follow Me Down is should be hopefully out to people by November this year. That's a um, two-player game based on Greek mythology, which is something I happen to also have a lot of experience in. Uh, based on the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, it's powered by the apocalypse. A lot of people seem to like it since it's two-player and GM-less. Um, I also have Star Hollow Hall, which I talked about a little bit, which was the gothic horror uh, game that uses the gumshoe system. And then I very briefly mentioned Charlotte. Sometimes that's part of um, like a LARP omnibus collection that's coming from my company at the very tail end of this year, like December, early January next year. Busy end of the year for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, hopefully <laughs> not going to structure next year like that. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. My next year is going to be very different from this year. I have no idea. I never plan out anything. So I don't know what my <laughs> my life will be like. Uh, you can find me at, at Joska on Twitter, or you can find my games at wannabegames.com or on DriveThruRPG or on Itch under the same name. Probably by the time that this episode comes out, if I remember what time is like, yeah, it'll be a couple weeks until The Means of Magic is out for digital release, which is inspired by my experiences living in a world being um, destroyed by climate change. Hmm. And um, I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Uh, my website is nerdburgergames.com. The games are available at Drive Through RPG. Uh, the Patreon is patreon.com slash nerdburgercraig. There's all sorts of fun keepers, cyber things happening there. And um, as of uh, just here recently, Nerdburger Games has taken the next step, and I will have my own booth at PAX Unplugged this year. There will be a booth that is just nerdburgergames.com. I got a team coming with me. We're going to sell a bunch of games, and um, it's kind of a big deal for me. Like, this is like a, a step that I could never have imagined seven years ago when I started down this road. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm excited for you, Craig. Let's, you're going to be the next Wizards of the Coast. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really, really cool. I know that you um, have been talking about uh, packs for, for a bit here. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about your successes. And Joy, I'm looking forward to hearing about the successes of your games as well. Thank you. Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, which was released under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.